Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. What is the soul? What does the word soul mean to you? If you had to answer this morning, if I singled you out and said, stand up, we want your answer today, describe it for me. Could you define the soul? Is it, a, is it a real thing? Does it really exist? It's kind of a familiar word in, in church circles, you know. You, the preacher's going to try to save some souls. We, we throw the term around. We sing about it. Then sings my soul. But it isn't only used in church. I mean, the word kind of, we find it outside a church world. The, the boat goes down at sea and the report says 10 souls were lost. We talk about soul food. We talk about soul music. Politicians may speak of the soul of the nation. Homer Simpson, I think, sold his soul to the devil for a donut. Do you remember that? You look it up, you Google it, Webster says, uh, soul is the immaterial essence, the animating principle, or the activating cause of an individual's life. And then below that it says, The soul is the spiritual part of a person believed to give life to the body and in many religions thought to live forever. Probably the the first time you heard this word was as you hear it in Tim Hawkins' video that we're going to pirate from uh, YouTube here and see if it runs. It's my first recollection. I heard you pray this with me in the dark when I was a kid. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to give. <laughs> if I should die, before I wake, I pray the Lord my Sweet dreams. <laughs> See you in the morning. Maybe. I don't know. 50 50. I can't guarantee anything. <laughs> oh, and don't let the bed bugs bite. <laughs> Remember that? Genesis 2 says this, the Lord, the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Not a body with a soul. He became a living soul. So in that respect, we're not, you know, we're not, we not, don't so much have a soul, we are a soul. And uh, 1, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, uh, Paul put it in these, in these words that we're kind of used to thinking in these terms. He said, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's an important word. It's, it's an important word in scripture. Is there a difference between the soul and the spirit? <clears throat> I tried to do some thinking about that. I tried to to do some looking around on that. And, and frankly, all the answers I found didn't, didn't make much sense to me, just didn't, didn't wash, didn't impress me much. But simply put, I think you, our, the, your soul is the real you. It's who you are on the inside. It's, it's like, the, uh, it's like the, the us or the me or the we that God sees and others don't see. And I, th- I think a lot of the time we're pretty much so caught up with the, the we that people see, the me that people see, we get so caught up with that that we lose track of the, the me that God sees. We're kind of soulless creatures sometimes. Uh, you know, kind of illusions of our real selves. Can I say it that way? Lost souls. John Ortberg wrote a book uh, called Soul Keeping, Caring for the Most Important Part of You. And, and in the book, he tells the story of this town that was situated on a lake, and there was a beautiful river ran into the lake, and the streams fed the river. 
and the, the river and the lake, it was kind of the center of the town, and the kids played in it, and the, the swans swam on it, and people just, they, the, the fish were there, and, the, and, and it was a beautiful situation, but <clears throat> what made it beautiful was way up in the mountains, the town had hired an old man that cared for the, the springs, that fed the streams, that fed the river, that fed the lake. And nobody saw the guy, you know, he would go from, from, from uh, spring to spring and he'd clear out the debris and kind of keep them the way they should be and everything was good. And they, the town finally said, you know, we don't even, this guy's up there, we're not even sure what he does, we're not going to pay him anymore. So he quit doing what he does and over a period of time, you know, the debris started getting into the, the springs and they started to get clogged up and eventually the stream started to deteriorate and the river began to deteriorate in the lake and suddenly the kids weren't playing anymore and the swans left and the water was grody and, you know, people realized we've got to do something and they rehired the man and he began to clean again and eventually things got back to the way they should be. And this is how he ended that little story. He said, the life of the village depended on the stream and the life of the stream depended on the keeper. The city council reconvened, the money was found, the old man was rehired and in time, the springs were cleaned, the stream was pure, the children played again, illness was replaced with health, the swans came home, the village came back to life. The life of the village depended on the health of the stream. The stream is your soul, and you are the keeper. And we're in Matthew 16 today, and I want, you, I want us to read it together. It's going to be up in front of you. Uh, a few verses there, we're going to cruise down through them. It's a privilege to spend these moments with you today. Uh, the gang from St. Stephen and from West are joining us today, and I invite us all to read these together as you see them in front of you. Let's go. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, read it with me, and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And of course, we're in Matthew. This is chapter 16, and we've been jumping in and out of Matthew through this year. Uh, we've been doing other series too, but every time we kind of finish one of those, we, we jump back into Matthew for a bit. Obviously, Pastor Brent isn't here, and we never announce when he's gone because you might not even show up here today. Uh, he's over in Charlottetown today preaching, and I know they're loving having him on site there this morning. But we're going to take another jump forward in Matthew, and we'll be, uh, we'll be stepping back out of Matthew and into some other stuff through the fall, but we aren't done. Matthew, of course, writes to the Jewish people and uh, wants to leave no doubt about who Jesus claimed to be and who Matthew thought he was. Uh, Matthew, more than any other writer in the Gospels, quoted the Old Testament, I think over 60 times. He would, he would make a statement and he would say, this was to fulfill what the prophet said, blah, 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 blah. And he would, he would connect what he was telling with what the Old Testament prophesied. Um, last week, Brent, we, we were in Matthew 16 and, and kind of the key verse there was 16, 16, verse 16. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? He said, what, what are people talking about me? But who do you say that I am? And uh, we're, we're going from that landmark statement that Peter made. What, what did he say? Do you remember what Peter replied? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? He answered the question correctly. And we're going from that, from that landmark statement to this very significant conversation that happened between Jesus and the disciples right after that. And I want to use four words 
to unpack these, these verses that you just read today, just to help you remember them. They're not specifically word, these aren't Matthew's way of organizing this. It's just kind of as I was trying to get my head around these verses, these four words help me kind of get, uh, get organized in my thinking, and maybe it'll help you this morning. And the first word we see in verse 21, and it's the word timing. Now, follow me here. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples. And what he, what he explained was that things were going to get bad. He was going to go to Jerusalem, and he was, going to be, uh, he was going to be killed, and on the third day, raised to life. From that time on. And, and from the time on that it's speaking about was from the time that Jesus began to allow people to identify him as he was identifying himself as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There was all this stuff happening in the unfolding ministry of Jesus, but when the, when the news really got out, this guy claims to be the Messiah. This is referring to from that point forward. Jesus asked the question, who do, you, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And when you think about what we've already witnessed in, in the book of Matthew, I mean, so many crazy things have happened. Uh, the feeding of the multitudes with just, you know, some fish and some loaves. There's been these miraculous, instantaneous healings. There's been, uh, you know, he's walked on the water. He's calmed the angry waves. There's been so many incredible things that the, that the disciples had seen and heard. And here in chapter 16, Jesus downloads uh, something on them that was obviously in God's timing, his plan. It was step by step. Yesterday... He couldn't say to them, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to, be, I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to raise again. There was a point prior to this time, they weren't ready for that news. He, he, he hadn't revealed it to them yet. They, 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 they couldn't know this. Yesterday they weren't ready, but today they weren't. But the reality is when you follow what happens next, they weren't ready. They should have been ready, but they weren't ready. It was not at all where they thought their life was going to go. I mean, talk about the bottom falling out of your life. You're hanging out with the Messiah. All these crazy, amazing things are happening. Everybody's talking about it. And, and when you get, start to get this, this life you're envisioning following Jesus, you get this all put together, and then Jesus springs this conversation on you that really knocks you. It didn't make sense. This wasn't how messiahs behave, you know? They didn't ask for it. They didn't expect it. They weren't prepared for it. And, and I got to thinking how true that is in our life, just like what Shay was speaking about as we were worshiping this morning, that, that you, you face things in life that, that you didn't ask for and you didn't expect and you weren't prepared for it. We've been there. Have you ever felt, as it relates to God's timing, that God's timing was off? Have you ever had something happen or you, you, you begin to really assess what, where this is going? Like, this is, what, you know, this is what today is and you begin thinking, well, like what is going on here? Have you ever, have you ever felt God was wrong? Have you ever felt that the trouble came too soon or, or God showed up too late? You know, the Bible talks about, about due time. It, it speaks of, 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 of God's time being due time. It says, you know, humble yourself in the sight of God, and in due time, God will lift you up. The Bible also says, uh, don't lose heart in doing good, for in due time, you will reap a harvest. You know, there, there's, this, there's this due time thing. Um, it, 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 it says that... Uh, that it talks about uh, in the fullness of time, right? You remember that, that term in Scripture? That God did what he did in the fullness of time. And, and some of the translations say, you know, at, the, at just the right time. You know, at the opportune moment. And yet you get in situations just like the disciples were in this deal. And they were saying, doesn't feel like due time to me. Doesn't feel like this is the opportune moment after all that's gone on to tell us that, that this is going to happen. I remember back in, in, uh, in the early 90s here at King's Church, we were, 
we were sending out a couple of missionaries, uh, Randy and Karen Purvis. They're an amazing couple. They ended up in Lithuania. And we were raising funds for them, and we, we filled a container with, with stuff and shipped it ahead. And Anyway, they get on the field, and within a few months of getting there, I mean, life just crashed for them. They, they, all this stuff started going wrong. And here we were back here in this little congregation, and we were praying for them and supporting them. And I remember people, you know, like it, it hit us hard. It's like, hey, they, they left their jobs and followed Jesus, and here they are in the mission field, and this is supposed to be great. And like, why is God allowing this to happen? You know, it just, it just didn't compute. It didn't make sense at all. Uh, this thing of God's timing is a weird, weird, difficult to understand issue. Second Peter 3, 8, 9 says, Don't forget this, friends, that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. It feels like that sometimes, right? And it goes on and says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I mean, God, God's doing his thing in his way and in his time. But boy, it sure doesn't seem easy to understand from our perspective. We think, why would God allow this? Like, <laughs> like are you asleep, Lord? Like, this is happening to me, and I'm trying to reach you, and you don't seem to be listening. Dallas Willard said this, I thought it was good. He said, the universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Our souls are not at risk, even from cancer. I was thinking, boy, there's lots of times in my life, just, I man, when Shay said it this morning, I thought, that is right on. There's so many times where you feel like your soul is at risk, that, that, that you doubt what, what is God doing, what are you up to, Lord. I've got a buddy named Keith that I've been praying for, and he's been posting some of his journeys, battling cancer. I got a note, I saw a note the other day, just, just this the other day, he said, just for the record, my God is the God of the mountain top, and he's also the God of the deepest valley. I'm finding it, I'm finding out the hard way that he shines brightest in the valley. The news today isn't the greatest. They're having a hard time between finding a balance for my clots and bleeding, and I'm having a surgery tomorrow on my bladder and my kidneys to see if they can stop the bleeding in my urine. And if this doesn't work, he says, my days are numbered. And he, and he says, and here I thought it would be the cancer that would kill me, not one of the side effects from the cure. To each and every one who has impacted my life, <clears throat> I just want to say thank you. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds it. Thanks for your continued prayer support and encouragement. I have not given up. I just wanted to clear the air. And I think sometimes you feel like you want to clear the air with God, you know? It's a matter of timing. And I, I, I kind of put it this way. You have no choice but to roll with God's timing. You have no choice. We have no choice. The, his plan is unfolding in our life. And so timing is the first word. Trusting is the next word. And you look in verse 22, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, merely human concerns. It's classic Peter-like, right? Like, no way, God. Like, he steps up. He puffs out his chest like you can just see it. He's, he's probably looking down at Jesus, right? We envision him being this big guy. And I thought to myself, I'm not a big guy like Peter, but I've sure been in a situation where I've tried to look God in the face and say, no way. Probably needs an adjective of some kind in between there. You know? <laughs> No way. Arguing with God. My amazing wife, Joy, has a little phrase she uses when I, like if I was to ask her to feed the chickens. 
she would say, hard no. <laughs> right? She's one of these crazy people. If you took her out for ice cream, she would want the vanilla. And I try to get her to just have a lick off of this chocolate ice cream. Just taste it. Hard no, right? Hard no is what we say to God sometimes. Hard no. I don't know whether you remember the movie uh, Heaven is for Real, the book. It was the kid that uh, meningitis, I think, and they, they caught it too late, and they took him to the hospital. And anyway, the story, you know, as a four-year-old, he started after he lived through this. He started saying things that they were tuning into, and the, the book basically unfolds that that he, he believes he was in heaven and he saw things. And, uh, you know, like, for example, the, they showed him a picture of his grandfather who was, like, 80 when he died, and he said, that's not Grampy. And then they showed him a picture of his grandfather when he was 30, and the kids who had never seen that picture or knew his grandfather, like, he said, yeah, that's Grampy, because I saw him in heaven. It was all, those kinds of stuff happened. happened. Anyway, when the kid came, when the kid was beginning to, tell all this, he told, he said to his father, I saw you in the room, dad. And his father said, what do you mean? He said, I saw you in that room hollering at God. And apparently as, the, as they're losing the kid and he's in the surgery and it's all so tense, his father, who was a pastor, steps into another room and he has this screaming session at God saying, God, don't take my boy, Right? And he's angry at God. He's hollering at God. And the kid bears witness to the fact that he was able to view his father having that argument with God. I read the book. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about? Have you been there? Have you had that, those kinds of feelings? Paul, Paul Peter says, absolutely not. This ain't going to happen. And you can't be too hard on Peter. I mean, this guy had left all to follow Jesus, right? This guy had stepped out of a boat in the dark in the waves and tried to walk on water. This guy had just, be, had just been given an A from Jesus when he answered the questions on the test. Who do you say that I am? Like, this guy had it going on here. And he might have aced the first test, but he flunked this one because Jesus stops him up real quick and he says, get weird words, really. Like, these are, these are harsh words. Get behind me, Satan. And he calls him a stumbling block. In, in, the, in my version, some of the versions use the word, you're a hindrance to me. The King James says, you're an offense. The New Living says, you're a dangerous trap to me, Peter. You're hindering me, Peter. I was asking myself, have I, have I, do I hinder God? Like, have I hindered him? Is his attitude towards me that, I, that I'm hindering him? He said, Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, only earthly concerns. You're more concerned with your plan than my plan. You're hindering me. And he also goes on, I think I could paraphrase his next words, and he says, and when you do that, Peter, it's got the, the fingerprints of the devil all over it. When you hinder me, when you have in mind your plans and wishes more than my plans and wishes, that is a hellish thing. And I, truthfully, you know, like as I've been hanging out in these verses... The, I had never thought about the times in my life where my concern was more about what was going on for me than what God might be up to. I'd never thought about that as being satanic or hellish. What do you mean? Like that, that my unwillingness to receive and keep trusting in what God's doing in my life was not a very heavenly response. I, I have an acquaintance um, whose, whose daughter, when she was college age, felt called to go to the mission field and dreamed of being a missionary, and this acquaintance would not allow her daughter to consider that, and her daughter has ended up living with her mother all of her life. And that came, to, as I was thinking about that, that came to my mind, I thought, 
I wonder how many ways that hindered what God wanted to do on planet Earth, in people's lives and in, you know, in, uh, in her life. I had a buddy that, I remember him coming to me and saying, <clears throat> I'm, gonna leave, I'm leaving my wife, Dawn, and I'm, I'm going with her. And I said, man, you can't do that. Like, you can't do that. We were good friends. He was studying for the ministry, in fact. And I said, you can't, like, don't do this. He said, I'm going to do it, and after I do it, I'm going to ask God to forgive me, and he's going to forgive me. And that life went on. I thought, that, that came to my mind as I think about it. You, you wonder, when, you, when God is saying, this is going, and you're saying, no, this is going, you wonder, what in the cosmic reality of the whole of eternity in the world, when you hinder God by refusing to trust him and accept his will and his plan, you wonder, what, what are all the eternal consequences of all that? I think that's kind of what maybe Jesus was saying could it be that when we refuse to receive the bad news or this, like the unexpected turn of events or whatever, and we refuse to trust and, and accept that we're short-circuiting whatever God may be up to in this life. Psalm 112, 6 and 7 says, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They, they will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. And, and I, I, I found this one in Psalm 143.8, which I like better. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. And there's something about being the kind of person where at some point in your journey with the Lord, you say, okay, like, this is the way, this is the deal. I am entrusting my life to God and whatever he brings my way, whatever his call is, whatever his will is, I'm already deciding before it even happens that I'm doing what he wants. I entrust my life to him. Trusting. Third words, testing. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet you could quote it, but forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So after schooling Peter on how serious it is to kind of disagree with God's unfolding plan... In, in, in your life, Jesus dump, jumps them into this, like, you know, graduate level course in what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And those, you know, like, what do you do when you deny yourself? It's like you have two selves the part you are denying. And the part who is doing the denying. You know what I'm saying here? Deny yourself. I am going to deny myself. So this self is going to deny that self. It's kind of a weird thing. I, you know, I get going around in my head there. like, Because uh, I've always thought about denying yourself more in terms of like you know, like a fast or, or, or Lent or our January, our January 21 day fast. You know, you kind of, you refuse to partake in something that you need or you enjoy and you almost are trying to create a painful, in that painful longing, you try to set God into the place of that. It's like, uh, you know, for Lent, I'm going to give up the sprinkles on my cupcakes or something like that, right? You, you do, you, you, you make this plan. But I don't think Jesus is talking about that here. And he says, deny yourself. In the context of what just went on, you know, Peter says, no, that's not, that's not happening. And Jesus says, no, no, you, you, you need to deny yourself. I'm, I'm sure, pretty sure, he's not talking about fasting. I don't think he's even, he's not talking about self-discipline. It's more complicated than that. It's more radical than that. In fact, the word, the word used for deny 
here is the same word that was used, the same Greek word that was used when Peter denied Jesus. Like, it's not just like forego. It's like this, I, I disassociate myself. I disown. I disown that. I repudiate that. Like, I deny that. Jesus says that to be his disciple, a man or a woman must deny himself, and he's, not, he, he, he's, he's calling for the courage and the discipline not only to resist the temptations of your appetite, but he's talking about something deeper, don't you think? Something deeper than that. It's almost like they asked uh, G.K. Chesterton, you know, what's wrong with the world? The famous answer, he said, I am. You know, what's wrong with the world is me. And I think that's the starting point. Peter said, no way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And, and, and it rattled Peter, and it ought to rattle us too, but this self-denial thing is, a, I think it's a deeper thing there. It's like, it's the opposite of independence. You know, I, I read this week, I'd never heard it before. Somebody said, pride is the national uh, religion of hell. Right? There's something big going on here. Jesus said, Peter, if you plan to go my way, this idea of satisfying you is over. Self is over. And man, I th that's a lesson I need to learn. I mean, that's a tough lesson. It's a tough lesson. Paul was struggling with that. You know, he said, uh, for I know that nothing good lives in with me. And remember the verse in Romans 7, he said, because I keep on doing the thing I don't want to do, Right? And even in Philippians, Paul says, even the good stuff in my life, I've come to the point of saying it's garbage, right? And Jesus keeps digging deeper. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross. And oh, baby, they knew what that meant. They knew what the cross meant. It meant one thing. It was a symbol of everything bad that happens to you if you get on the downside of Rome, like the cross, and, and Jesus used the cross, take up your cross, as an image with what it means to be a disciple. And I want, I want to say that Peter instantaneously connected the dots. He knew exactly what that was all about. And the weird thing is, when this happened, Jesus had never told the disciples yet that he was going to die on a cross. Jesus brought the issue of the cross into what it means to be a follower of him before he experienced the cross himself. And <clears throat> Peter and the rest of the guys knew what crucifixion was all about. The most horrible of deaths. The Romans called it the extreme penalty. They wouldn't even crucify a Roman citizen because it was beneath them. It was so awful. Peter and these guys knew about crucifixion. There's a village called Sephorus just a few miles from Nazareth, and in 4 BC, not too long before this happened, in 4 BC, a Roman general crucified 2,000 Jewish rebels and lined the road from Sephorus all the way to Galilee. 2,000 people hanging on a cross. So don't imagine when Jesus brought up the cross... He wasn't saying the cross you have to bear is like, oh, we all have a cross to bear. You know, you're thinking about your husband or something, right? I have, you know, we all have a, cro a crosses we have to bear. Like, it's like he's saying, Peter, you've got to give up your inconvenient burdens. No, no, no. He, he's, he's talking about the cross, and there's no mistake like what he's talking about there. And what the cross meant for Jesus, he was saying, it was going to mean for Peter. And the implication of this is that what it meant for Peter and the disciples, it's going to mean for us. So, like, how would you explain the cross to your kids in this context? Like, how would you explain that to them? What, what would you say to them? Take up your cross. What, how would you explain that to them? Because for Jesus, it meant a bunch of stuff. It meant opposition. He, he, was, he was hated. He was attacked. I was thinking as we were praying for these kids today. How do you explain the cross to your kids? Jesus was, he faced great opposition. He was hated. He was attacked. He faced shame. He was ridiculed, right? 
They, they, they spit on him. They disrespected him. Opposition and shame and, I mean, suffering for sure. They speared him. They beat him. They whipped him. They kicked him. They hung him. And death. He died. Right? That's what the cross meant. Scripture says you're bought with a great price. That's it. That's the price. And Jesus looks at Peter in the eye. I mean, you, you can't get away from this in this passage. He looks him in the eye and says, Peter, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross. You're in for the same. And maybe you faced opposition for being a Christian. Probably there's some amazing stories here today about that. From your friends or your family, you know. They don't understand. Your boyfriend. Some of you are facing opposition from the person you're married to. Right, right in, in these days. They're, they're opposing you. I, I heard about a kid going home from camp this year. He, he get out of the car and his folks were there waiting for him. And he grabs his duffel bag and he's going over to his dad to greet his dad. And the first thing his dad says to him is, I hope you didn't bring any of that Jesus stuff home from camp with you. Right? That's opposition. Or shame. Have you ever felt humiliated or embarrassed because of Jesus? Someone laughed at you, made fun of your faith? Had a teacher or a professor single you out? Ridicule you, ridicule the Bible? I think when we're called to carry our cross, it's saying that to identify with the, we're identifying with the very things Jesus went through. Jesus said, and Dan already had a, a, one of the Beatitudes up there this morning. In Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Count it all joy, James said, when you fall into trials. That's, that's, that's the cross. <clears throat> Jesus said you'll not only face violent opposition, but, but he talked about suffering. So that, that when we suffer, that's part of the cross. And I, like, that, that messed me up in getting ready for this. Singing, I can, I can, I can figure out, like, the first part of that, but how, when I suffer, and I'm suffering alone, and nobody knows about it, and I'm just, I'm living this crap, I'm, I'm dealing with this, and, like, how, how is that part of the cross? That's a little vague to me. I mean, 2 Corinthians talks about uh, the, the sufferings of Christ flowing over into our lives. You remember that term? Uh, Paul said it this way, that this, this kind of helps. This is Romans 8, 17. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Indeed, if we share in his sufferings in order that we would share in his glory. There's something about this, you know. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. There's this, there's this kind of connection between me and, and the Lord and life and the crud and the opposition and the pain and the suffering. Probably all of those Jesus was talking about, but also death. I mean, he's talking to Peter that this was a life-threatening journey Peter was deciding to go on. Right, a quick Google search. 2022, they, Google said that 360 million Christians, one in seven believers, suffered serious persecution for their faith. And that in 2021, an average of 16 people a day were killed for following Jesus. 6,000 people martyred for their faith that year. So Revelation, you know, he says, Revelation 2.10, be faithful even to the point of death and you will receive the victor's crown. And guys, that's what, Pete, that's what Jesus was talking about to Peter and that, that can't be lost on us even here in sleepy little New Brunswick. But I think also it means, the cross means the image of the cross on us. 
you know? That, 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 that when we carry the cross, it means denying self. It means dying to the old me, you know? It, it's, 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 it's my history. It's like what happens when I get baptized. I, I die to me and I'm raised. You know, the, the, the Bible is full of this. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. Yet no longer I live, but Christ lives within me. That, in Romans 12.1, I urge you, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins on the body so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if you, if you want to dig into what Jesus was talking about when he's, when, he's, when he's saying you have to take up your cross, it certainly encompasses, you know, opposition and, and, and pain and, and, and suffering, but also death. But it, 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 it digs deeper. It's about this uh, willingness on our part to be, be ready to accept what God has for us to the point that it's, it's as if we're dying to our self. It's likely referring to the crucifixion of our will, our stubbornness, our pride. It's talking about that if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to figure out what sacrificial living means and what living a crucified life means. It sounds like religious lingo, doesn't it? Can you think of anything that sounds any more like church talk than if I say to you, brother, you need to live a crucified life? But I think it's what Jesus was getting at there. It's, it's a picture that's pretty hard to ignore. I mean, what would it look like for you and I to live a life of self-denial, a crucified life? What would that look like for you to be that person in your marriage? How could, what would, a, what would the life of a, of a person who, who knew what self-denial and living a crucified life was like, how would that show up in you as a parent? Or in your serving? Or in your work? How does a, how does a person who knows what the crucified life is about, how do they share their opinions? How do they live in their home? What, what, what's, what's, what's going on in their relationships? What's happening sexually or financially? Because living a crucified life, I think it's about your head and your heart and your hands and your voice and your thoughts. Like it's all this stuff. And Jesus goes right on and he lays down this new way of looking at the world. If you're going to live that way, he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will find it. Like it's this exchange, it's this, it's this, it's this with full foreknowledge, I understand the cost, I've counted the cost, I think as best I can, I, I know what, what making this decision might entail, and my answer is yes, Lord, I'm writing out the blank check and I'm entrusting my life to you. Picture of Jim Elliott's plane landed on a sandbar in Ecuador back in 1954 or something. I think you guys have that. Missionary Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and a few guys, they were trying to reach an unreached tribe, the Aka Indians. They were, had dropped gifts out of their plane and, and finally they landed on the sandbar after trying to get in touch with these people. And then days later, they recovered the bodies of those young missionaries full of spears and arrows. They laid down their life for that. I, I remember as a young Christian hearing the, that story. And, and Jim Elliott is the guy that said what Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life must lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life, he paraphrased that. And he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And it captures what Jesus is saying here to Peter, I think, perfectly. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he must do this. <clears throat> it's not only about rolling with God's timing. It's not only about choosing to keep trusting. It's also 
to, about experiencing testing. You have no alternative to experiencing some form of testing in your life. And quickly, the last word I want you to think about is trembling. Had to be another T, didn't it? Right? Had to be timing, trusting, testing, trembling. You have no conception of the intensity of your trembling. This is going to happen. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man, for probably means because, Jesus said, you need to do all this, Peter, because, or for, because the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. And he talks about the day of the Lord's return and what's going to happen. And I, I had to have another T, and trembling was the only word I could think about. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's going to be, there's going to be a whole lot of trembling going on. Martin Luther said, you must live for today and for that day. Because that day is coming. The great day, the end of time. There's going to be a lot of trembling in awe and wonder and worship and relief as we experience what our faith has told us was there. But there's also going to, be, there's going to be trembling in fear and dread. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. This is the, in the King James Version. I like the way it says it. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day and not to me only but unto all them also that love his appearing. And that day is going to be a day of amazing joy and gratitude and worship and wonder for all who love his appearing. All who are who are awaiting him, looking forward to him, following him, the bliss and the relief that comes with that. Says that Jesus says that he's going to reward people according to what they have done. So Jesus said, even a cup of cold water will not lose his reward. It's going to be something. The Bible says our labors for the Lord are not in vain. The Bible says we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Bible speaks about the prize for which Christ has called us heavenward. Bible says God is the rewarder of those who earnest like it's there, friends. 1 Corinthians 2 9 says, Eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and no human mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But on the other hand, the wages of sin is death. John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John was discussing this very thing in John 5. He said, don't be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the voice of God and come out. And those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is bad will rise to be condemned. There's going to be a whole lot of trembling going on. I close, just kind of wrap this up with, and I, I, man, I struggled with how to close this, and I thought, you know, the thing on this that has made the most sense for me in my life is the old image of the lifehouse. I looked, I tried to find on, I tried to find some little graphic for it, I couldn't. I'm like, imagine a little house that a kid would draw. And that house stands for my life. And I remember the day when I was in that house and I heard the knock of the Holy Spirit on the door of my life. And a revelation says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I, like right now, I remember being in that place. For me, it was, I, was in the, I was in a car when that was happening to me. And I, the, the, there was just this sense, man, God is pounding at my life. He's pounding at the door of my life. And I remember the time when I opened the door and let him in. And that was the beginning. But you know what I remember just as clearly? 
I remember when he started living in my life and in my home and he moved in and I showed him this bedroom over here and put, I put his stuff over in that bedroom and I took him around to the fridge and said, you're, you know, you're welcome to have whatever's here. You know, I remember going to work the next day and I came home and Jesus had already rearranged the furniture. By the end of the week, he was redecorating the front yard and painting the house and He's doing all this stuff on my, in my life, right? Over the course of these next months, he's like, he's wrecking the place. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. And just, I could embellish that a lot, but that got so frustrating in my life. It was like, I remember the day too, just as clearly when it's just like I ran down in the basement and opened the safe and took out the deed to my house and took it up to Jesus and said, Hey, you can not only live here, this place is yours. I, 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 I not only want you in my life, I'm giving my life to you. I entrust my life to you. And Jesus is not going to profit you to gain the whole world and lose the thing that's most important. And that's your life, your soul, your eternal being that will live forever and ever somewhere. And when the Son of Man returns in all of his glory, I want to be trembling with joy and anticipation. It's a great hope. What a hope we have. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here this morning. Thank you for every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I know every one of them is in one of two categories. They know you or they don't know you. They've invited you to forgive, that, forgive them of their sin. They've humbly confessed their need of you. Or they've never done that. And I pray, Lord, that if there's someone who needs to do that today, you would give them the courage to bow the knee, to, 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 to humble their, their, themselves in your sight and say, Lord, forgive my sins. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner, and I know, I know I need you in my life. And then, Lord, I know there's a bunch of people here because it's still going on in my life. After all these years, you are at work, and you're changing and uprooting and, and moving things and bringing new directions and new plans that I wasn't ready for and I didn't expect and maybe I didn't even want. And I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us who call you our Lord, that you would give us the, the wisdom, Lord, to entrust our life to you and to cooperate fully with your will and your way, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow you as much as we know how to do it, Lord. Receive that as our worship in this place today and be glorified, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.